Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 37, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Boldness. been said about military plans that they last as long as until the first shot is fired or I guess the first nose is bloodied. I mean, perhaps that's true. I don't know. I've never been to battle, but it does strike me that the first shock of battle can rattle the nerves and the first casualties really does change one's perspective of the landscape. Well, of course, I'm not here to speak about battlefields. I, for my part, would be oh so happy if the human race would never see another bloody conflict. But I am right to point out that the New Testament is filled with images of spiritual warfare and the promise that whenever we seek to advance the gospel, we will surely see a very strong reaction from the enemy of our souls. It's interesting to view the new church's first brush with a hostile government from that perspective. Peter and John, the leaders of the early church, have just been arrested by the same governing body that had been responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. And while being interviewed, they were threatened and ordered never to speak to the people again in the name of Jesus. And when Peter and John had clearly indicated they would not be obeying that order, they were further threatened and released. We have to imagine the reaction of the rest of the church. It now must have seemed clear that the days of, you know, the strong growth of the church without an official pushback was now over. That era was behind them now. Furthermore, while Peter and John were kept in custody throughout one day and into the next, the church would not have been given information about them nor about the proceedings they were facing. So you have to imagine a very quick call to prayer with looks of concern and a wonderment about what's going to happen next. This surely was that first shock of battle. This was the first bloodied nose. The question now would be first, what just happened? And then second, What do we do? In our study of the book of Acts, we've now come to the last section of chapter 4, so let's read the introductory sentence of that section. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. It's an interesting choice of words that Luke uses. They went to their friends, and we have to assume it must mean, at the very least, the other ten apostles, but it must also mean some group beyond that. It must mean that those whom Peter and John trusted, those who could be counted on, to be confidential when things needed to be confidential, and also those men and women who were least likely to lose their nerve or panic in the day of battle. You know, one general in the American Civil War, when told by a panicked soldier that the battle was lost, responded by telling the soldier, if you think it, you will do well to keep the matter to yourself. Friends, no doubt, means the inner circle that Peter and John knew they could trust and what surely now looked like very trying times. And with that, Peter and John hold nothing back. They give the full blow-by-blow report of all that's happened, including the threat that if they continue to preach about Jesus, there would be a stiffer resolve from the authorities. So how do the friends respond? You know, sadly, for so many of us today, the response might involve a long meeting to decide strategy or you know, perhaps finding some member of the Sanhedrin who might have been sympathetic to them, then trying to get that person to advocate on their behalf. You know, but Luke reports on only one thing, prayer. 
It turns out that the friends of Peter and John did have a highly placed source who was sympathetic to them. And that was their God. It was time to pray. So let's read the first, which is, as we will see, that first part of the prayer in which the fog of war lifts and they're able to see clearly. I'm reading Acts 4, 24 to 26. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, this prayer is in many ways a typically Jewish way of beginning prayer. It does remind me of King Hezekiah's prayer when the armies of Assyria had surrounded Jerusalem and were threatening to destroy the city. So Isaiah 37 verse 16 records the king's prayer. He prays, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. See, when King Hezekiah starts his prayer by reminding himself that his God is the creator of all that exists, he reminds himself that all things are therefore subject to God. God rules all things. All things are destined to do the bidding of the one true God. That's also what the believers do here in Acts as they begin their prayers. They're not telling God who he is. Listen, he already knows that. But they're praising God for who God has revealed himself to be. And as they worship the sovereign God, the the governing God, the ruling God, the creator God, well, they're now focused on that aspect of God that they must not forget. You know, understand that prayer does have that effect on us, especially if we pray by remembering the attributes of God that are found in Scripture. Rather than simply coming to God and yelling, help, you know, we do better when we recall who he is and come trembling in his presence, basking in his magnificent greatness, his governance over all created things. Oh, I really do wish we all learned to do this, for if we prayed like this, I do believe we would approach God in much greater peace of heart and soul for all things, you know, including the threats of those who want to intimidate us, You know, all these things are under the ruling hand of God. What he permits happens. What he forbids will never take place. Well, next, the believers go to a scripture that speaks about their specific situation. And in this case, they go to Psalm 2, which is one of the great messianic psalms. Speaking of the Messiah, David says that God had said to his Messiah, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your heritage. And of course, these believers would also have remembered that Just before he went into heaven, Jesus had told them to preach the gospel to all nations. And then he added, I am with you always. And so by quoting Psalm 2, the friends of Peter and John remember, especially verses 1 and 2. See, in that part of the psalm, knowing that the Messiah is destined to rule the nations, David asks, why then do the Gentile nations rage against the one who sits on Israel's throne? And Why do they enter into counsel with one another to plot his overthrow? I mean, how utterly mad and silly and what a fool's errand it is to act this way. Why do the strongest kings of the earth form a united alliance, deceiving themselves into thinking that they can now mount a successful campaign against the Messiah? (laughs) And now then the rest of the psalm says that the one seated in heaven laughs at them. And of course, why shouldn't he laugh? 
You know, it's like a few ants gathered together. One word from the Lord and they're immediately scattered. Now, of course, in Psalm 2, the antagonists are the Gentile nations surrounding Israel. But as the believers in Acts mention this psalm, they know that their problem is not with the Gentiles, but rather it's with the Jewish ruling council. But it doesn't really matter who the opposition is. The, the principle remains the same. The one who sits in the heavens is not intimidated ever. Let me say this about all of us who go to prayer in times of great distress. Listen, the better we know Scripture, the more we understand what Scripture is saying, and the more often we read the Bible through, the more easily we're going to remember those Scriptures that speak most directly to our unique situation. The use of the Bible in prayer is absolutely vital. Now, in Psalm 2, the foolish enemies of the king think that they can win a victory against God. And it's the same way with the Sadducees and the families of the high priest. You know, they had crucified Jesus, and, and now they had imprisoned the apostles with, well, it seems like they had done it with relative ease, and it seemed so simple, didn't it? But as the church remembered Psalm 2, they remembered those foolish nations that thought the same in their day, and look where their foolishness brought them. What we're reading here is the, the prayer language of faith. I don't mean if you believe something strong enough, it's going to happen. I mean, biblical faith, of course, is never that. It's not a game of convincing ourselves of something that we'd really like to see. Biblical faith is remembering the God of the Bible. It's remembering his mighty acts. It's remembering his promises. And of course, it's remembering his sovereignty. You know, if only we might learn this, then when the first shot is fired in anger, it's fired on the battlefield of our faith, and therefore we don't panic. Instead, we simply open the book. We remember our God. We enter into his presence. We begin to worship him. All of our answers are found before that throne. We're so grateful for those who listen, view, read, and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement confirms that people are being impacted through the trustworthy teaching of the Bible. Just a couple of recent notes. I'm so thankful for teaching which emphasizes both the free offer of the gospel and the urgent need for godly living in response to the gospel. And I find your teaching is helping me grow in my faith. And for me, you're an essential service. Please keep on teaching the Bible. Thank you for joining us in ministry. This is why you matter. Your partnership ensures that instead of living in confusion, Canadians from all generations, coast to coast, can grow in faith, understand the gospel, and access trustworthy Bible teaching. And don't forget this month, we want to send you as our free gift, Dr. John's brand new series, Bible Teaching You Can Trust. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. After Peter and John had been both arrested and released, and after the friends of those two men met together for prayer, they, they remembered the greatness and the promises of their God. And as they pray, their faith, their, their confidence in God is buoyed, they're energized to speak to God directly about what they're facing. Let's continue to read the prayer, and here I'm reading Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, 
along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So have you noticed? These believers have not yet brought a prayer request to God. But having remembered that God is sovereign and that no one can resist his will, they then, through, through that prism or that lens, through that looking glass, in that way of seeing what's just happened, they're now ready to interpret the past events. See, without faith, I suspect they would have moved towards questioning God. Lord, we're being persecuted. Oh, Lord, we're doing your will. And this is what these evil men are doing. Stop them, Lord. Oh, Lord, how can you let this happen? Lord, don't let it happen anymore. You recognize those kinds of prayers? Maybe you've prayed just like that, perhaps even more than once. Well, I'm ashamed to admit that I've done it as well, and I also acknowledge that when I've done it, it's not been a prayer of faith at all. Notice in the prayer words of a group of men and women who have just been reminding themselves in their worship that their God is sovereign and that he rules over all. If it is true, and it is, you know, what then is the explanation for the arrest and the threats that are meant to intimidate? And the answer has to be that God had willed that the leadership of the Sanhedrin should act in just this fashion. How's that possible? You know, since the apostles, along with the wider church, were doing exactly what God had told them to do, how can God then will that the Sanhedrin would act in this way? You know, by the time we get to Acts chapter 8, the Sanhedrin will orchestrate a great persecution against the church, so much so that the apostles are forced to leave the city. So is this how God acts? Yes. These praying men and women conclude that it must be so. Notice that they acknowledge that that was especially true in the crucifixion of Jesus. When Herod, along with Pilate, along with the Gentile Romans, along with the people of Israel, when they conspired together to torture and kill Jesus, they were only doing what God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. And I know, I know, some of you who listen to my voice find such a difficulty with that word. You can hardly get it out. You know, it's the word predestined. You know, the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear it is to protest. What about free will? And there are some of us who frequently say, I don't believe in predestination, even though it's a word the Bible uses without apology and in praise of God. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I know some of us want to tear that verse out of our Bible. I encourage you, however, instead of fighting against the word, rejoice in it. If God predestined you before the world began, then you're eternally his. Who can separate you from the love of Christ? Don't say, you know, what a troublesome verse. Rather say, what a marvelous truth. And here in the book of Acts, when the friends of Peter and John are praying, they remember what all the enemies of Jesus did to him. They remember, ah, yeah, your sovereign Lord. They did only that which you had predestined would happen. Later on, Peter, who, as we know, was at this very prayer meeting, he would write 1 Peter chapter 1. He would speak of the crucifixion of Jesus and you know, his precious blood slain like a lamb without blemish or spot. And then in chapter 1, verse 20, speaking about the crucifixion of Jesus, Peter would add, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but it was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. That is, whether the crucifixion was foreknown or predestined is really saying the same thing. God planned it from before the foundation of the world. 
Now, those who want to add, well, what about free will? The answer, well, it should be plain. Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, Israel, all acted out of free will, and hence, they're guilty. However we conceive of this, it should be clear that these two concepts, predestination and free will, well, they aren't opposites. It may be that we have some difficulty in understanding how both can be true, but that doesn't negate that God has told us there can be predestination and free will without any contradiction. Well, I fear, however, I'm getting too far off track. You know, the believers in Acts are so encouraged by predestination. It means that God is sovereign. He predestined that Jesus would be crucified, and he also predestined that Peter and John should be arrested. So now comes that part in their prayer where they're ready to bring their request to God. So given what they have prayed up till now, what would you think their request would sound like? Well, if you had never read what followed, you might still anticipate what happens next. You would know that they wouldn't be praying, oh God, stop them, or oh Lord, don't let us suffer. You wouldn't expect them to pray anything like that. You know, chapter four, verses 29 to 30 records their prayer request. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Two requests. First, make us extraordinarily courageous so that we won't be intimidated or reactionary, but will continue to do what you called us to do. Make us brave. Make us bold. You know, second, keep on healing people and performing signs and wonders because when you do that, it makes it easier for us to proclaim the gospel. Now, on this matter, there, you know, there's some discussion about to what extent believers can anticipate healing and miracles today. You know, is this latter part of the prayer only for the apostolic age or are we to pray for the same thing and should we anticipate the same thing in our day? You know, rather than debating this matter, why don't we just pray and ask God to heal and do signs among us? He's God. Let him decide what should be done. You know, some time ago, and I have a very clear memory of this, a young man who belonged to another religion came to my office and he wanted to talk about an issue in his life that looked like the worst possible scenario was about to happen to him. So I said to him, can I pray to my God on your behalf? And he said, yes. And so I prayed. I prayed, God, in the name of your one and only son, Jesus, who was crucified on the cross for all who would believe so that they might receive forgiveness from sins, that this very God would answer this man's need. You know, I wanted him to hear about the one true God. Well, several days later, he came into my office. His eyes were brimming with tears. He said, your God did this for me. What an opportunity that was, don't you think, to share the gospel? By then, he was all ears. Signs and wonders do that. And with that, the band of brothers and sisters are done praying. Acts 4.31 simply says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It's a marvelous result. Again, as we've seen before, the Holy Spirit shows up. He fills them with power. The place is shaken, and so he gives unmistakable evidence that he's there, and the brothers become bold. We might expect at this point that Luke would tell us where the next outreach event would occur, but he actually doesn't. Indeed, listen to what Luke mentions next, Acts 4, 32 and 33. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, 
and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. Well, how so? For one, they were of one heart and soul. They were united, unified. Pressure can divide a church, but this one didn't. It strengthened them. It brought them together. It gave them a greater commitment to remain united. And second, it gave the church a much greater willingness to to look out for one another. We'll talk more about that tomorrow, especially in the matter of giving and taking care of the needy. But finally, Luke also mentions that the continued proclamation of the gospel in Jerusalem was going on with great power. That is, the need to reach out to the lost wasn't slowed down, not a bit. Rather, it must have been noticed by all that the ability to keep going came from the Holy Spirit. And clearly, the threats of the Sanhedrin had no bearing at all. By now, it should be clear to all of us, boldness is a gift of the Holy Spirit. But it also comes about when we're thinking rightly about God as we pray to him, that we have a genuine faith in who he is. Boldness comes about as we know God and as the Holy Spirit continues to give us power. Are you bold or are you timid? I hope you have now come to see that boldness does not arise out of bold people. It rather arises out of people of faith who have received the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks, John. You know, I know you've traveled extensively ministering in many countries, and I think you've made the observation that many Christians in persecuted countries don't pray for a reduction in persecution as much as they do for boldness. What should that say to us? Well, I think it does say to us that we have, uh, we've got an idol in our life, and that is living at ease and being secure and being free of trouble tends to be an idol for us. Rather, we ought to say, um, my, my hope is in the joy that I have in knowing God, and whatever maximizes my eternal joy ought to be what motivates me. Um, so we, we, we have something to learn here. If there are those brothers and sisters who say, you know, Lord, I just simply want you uh, to give me more boldness, uh, then we should learn from them and say, there's something better than what we have accumulated. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in the book of Acts, Jesus Goes Global, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Every week in Doubt, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, airs a new insightful conversation about issues of life and faith targeted to a young adult audience. These conversations include Christian pastors and leaders from around the globe discussing important topics from a biblical perspective. Topics such as the sanctity of life or forgiveness, sexuality, the church, issues of mental health, loneliness, abuse, always with the intention of offering a biblical response. Join In Doubt on air on the indoubt.ca website, the Indoubt mobile app, or subscribe for our weekly podcast. We live in a time and place where the daily questions of life and faith are challenging. We believe the Bible will guide us toward truth and, and challenge us to live radically different lives. For more information about In Doubt, or if you'd like to support this ministry, call us today at one 800 663 
or visit indoubt.ca.